Frank Willis worked the midnight to 7 a.m. shift as a security guard at the Watergate office building in Washington, D.C. Shortly after signing in on June 17, 1972, the 24-year-old Willis noticed something amiss. His entries into the Watergate security log reveal that he found doors on levels B2 and B3 stuffed with papers. At 12.30 a.m., Willis cut all the lights out in the hall and began to investigate. When he found a door taped open, he called the D.C. police. It was just before 2 a.m., so began the biggest scandal in presidential history. Good evening. We have a mystery story out of Washington. Five people have been arrested and charged with breaking into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee in the middle of the night. But these burglars were not ordinary thieves. They carried wiretaps to install on telephones. They carried cameras to photograph documents. Four of the five criminals were anti-Castro Cubans who had been previously hired by the CIA. The fifth was James McCord the security advisor for Nixon's campaign staff, known as the Committee to Re-Elect the President, Creep. Welcome to another episode of Print the Legend, a podcast for U.S. history students where we take a look at the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. In this episode, we examine the 1970s, a rather dormant decade when compared to the tumultuous 1960s, Many Americans coped with the current malaise by turning inward after Watergate. Outlandish fashion and outrageous fads such as streaking and mood rings were common. But perhaps very little can capture the 1970s more than the lit dance floors at the Odyssey 2000 and Saturday Night Fever, or people actually owning pet rocks. So tonight, to you, the great silent majority of my fellow Americans, I ask for your support. I pledged in my campaign for the presidency to end the war in a way that we could win the peace. In the heated political and social climate of the late 1960s and early 1970s, President Richard Nixon believed strongly that a war was being fought between us and them. To Nixon, us meant the conservative, middle, and working class, church-going Americans who believed that the United States was in danger of crumbling. Them meant the young, defiant, free-love, anti-war, liberal counterculture figures who sought to transform American values. Nixon would stop at nothing to win this war, with the hearts and minds of the silent majority, even if it meant breaking the law. In 1971, a White House group known as the Plumbers was established to eliminate administration leaks to the press. Their first target was Daniel Ellsberg, who had worked on the Pentagon Papers, a highly critical study of America's Vietnam policy. Ellsberg leaked the Pentagon Papers, intended to be used internally by the government, to the New York Times. He's a fellow that worked over with Ellsberg, who worked in the Defense Department, and by golly, we're going to get him, and he's going to go to jail. The plumbers vandalized the office of Ellsberg's psychiatrist, hoping to find discrediting information on Ellsberg to release to the public. The study had 47 volumes. 
I slipped out a couple at a time. It took me months to copy it all. The story of the Pentagon Papers is legendary. Later that year, Attorney General John Mitchell resigned to head creep. The campaign raised millions of dollars in illegal contributions and laundered several hundred thousand for plumbing activities. A White House advisor named G. Gordon Liddy suggested that the Democratic headquarters be bugged and that other funds should be used to bribe, threaten, or smear Nixon's opponents. After the arrest of the burglars, Nixon suggested the payments of hush money to avoid a connection between Watergate and the White House. He suggested that the FBI cease any investigation of the break-in. He also recommended that staffers perjure themselves if subpoenaed in court. The Watergate cover-up, it was called, was initially successful. Despite a headline story in the Washington Post by Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein suggesting White House involvement directly, Nixon went on to win 49 of 50 states in the November 1972 presidential election against George McGovern. It is now clear that Richard Nixon is the winner of this election. If what we have learned so far from the votes already cast continues to happen as the polls close across the country, the president will be reelected in a landslide. When the burglars were tried in January 1973, James McCord admitted in a letter that members of the Nixon administration ordered the Watergate break-in. A Senate committee was appointed to investigate, and Nixon succumbed to public pressure, eventually appointing a special prosecutor, Archibald Cox, to scrutinize the matter. Complicitous in the cover-up, many high-level White House officials resigned, including Nixon's chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, and his advisor on domestic affairs, John Ehrlichman. Good evening. The country tonight is in the midst of what may be the most serious constitutional crisis in its history. And in an unrelated case, Vice President Spiro Agnew resigned, facing charges of bribery and tax evasion. But it would be Nixon's own personal counsel, John Dean, who agreed to cooperate with the Senate testified about Nixon's involvement in the cover-up. Well, do you have an, a belief as to whether or not he did have knowledge of the implications, the legal implications of this cover-up activity? I can't put myself in the president's mind. Uh, Based on the facts you've given this committee? Based on the facts I've given this committee, I would think the president would certainly have some appreciation of the legal problems involved, yes indeed. A televised speech, Nixon assured the American public that I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. It seemed like a matter of Nixon's word against Dean's until a low-level aide told the committee that Nixon had been in the practice of taping every conversation held in the Oval Office. Frankly, people are getting goddamn sick of it now, you know, it's, I mean, I think, in fact, you know, I've noticed, I've noticed people just, I just have a feeling that uh, even now, you know, you, you pick up the paper and it's Watergate, Watergate, Dean charges this, somebody charges that. Nixon flatly refused to submit the tapes to the committee. 
And when Archibald Cox demanded he surrender the tapes, Nixon had him fired. Public outcry pressed Nixon to agree to release typewritten transcripts of the tapes, but Americans were not satisfied. The tape transcripts further damaged Nixon. On the tapes, he swore like a sailor and behaved like a bully. But then there was this matter of 17 crucial minutes missing from one of the tapes. Finally, in the U.S. versus Nixon, the Supreme Court declared that executive privilege did not apply in this case, and Nixon was ordered to give the evidence to Congress. By this time, though, the House Judiciary Committee had already drawn up articles of impeachment, and Nixon knew he did not have the votes in the Senate to save his presidency. On August 8, 1974, Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. His successor, Gerald Ford, promptly awarded Nixon a full pardon of any crimes, and the press and the public cried foul, but Ford defended his decision by insisting the nation was better served by ending what he called the long national nightmare. During his years in office, Nixon had brought a controversial end to the Vietnam War, open communication with Red China, watched NASA put astronauts on the moon, and presided over a healing period in American history in the early 1970s. But despite many of these accomplishments, it would be Watergate's shadow that would tower over Nixon's legacy. Malaise is an indefinite feeling of debility or lack of health, a vague sense of mental or moral ill-being. People can feel malaise, nations can feel malaise, economics can even feel malaise. And in the mid-1970s, much of America suffered a collective malaise. And nothing fuels a strong case of malaise like a sputtering economy. The United States had grown accustomed to steady economic growth since the end of World War II. Recessions were short, and they were followed, though, by a robust economic growth period. But for the first time since the Great Depression, Americans faced an economy that could result in a lower standard of living for their children. Inflation, which crept along at 1% to 3% for the previous two decades, exploded into double digits in the 1970s. Full employment, defined as 5% or less, had been achieved in most years since 1945, but now the unemployment rate was nearing the dangerous 10% line. Americans began to ask, what's going on? Economists had long held that inflation and unemployment were polar forces. High inflation meant a great deal of spending, therefore jobs would be created. Unemployment created jobless Americans with less money to spend, therefore prices would stay or even fall. But surprisingly, the United States experienced high unemployment and high inflation simultaneously in the 1970s, a phenomenon called stagflation. Service stations all across the country may adjust their price per gallon effective Saturday, September 1st, as they come off the freeze under the Phase 4 guidelines. One possibility was the price of oil. When Israel defeated its Arab neighbors in the Yom Kippur War of 1973, Arab oil producers retaliated against Israel's allies by leading the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, OPEC, to enact an embargo. Oil prices skyrocketed immediately in the United States as the demand outstripped supply. 
Automobiles and drivers sat in long gas lines at service stations. Richard Nixon tried to fight this inflation first by cutting government spending, but ultimately by imposing wage and price controls on an entire nation. Gerald Ford afterwards watched the nation's inflation rate soar above 11% in 1974, and he enacted a huge propaganda campaign called Whip Inflation Now, or WIN, which asked Americans to control spending voluntarily. They also looked at wage demands and price increases. But the economy, along with Watergate's disillusionment, led Ford to suffer defeat at the hands of Jimmy Carter in the 1976 presidential election. This inauguration ceremony marks a new beginning, a new dedication within our government, and a new spirit. So Carter tried his hand at the economy with tax and spending cuts, but the annual inflation rate continued to rise, topping at 18% under his watch in the summer of 1980. At the same time, the unemployment rate fluctuated between 6 and 10%. Economic woes may well have been the decisive factor in Carter's defeat to Ronald Reagan in the election of 1980. The American embassy in Tehran is in the hands of Muslim students tonight. Spurred on by an anti-American speech by the Ayatollah Khomeini, they stormed the embassy, fought the Marine Guards for three hours, overpowered them, and took dozens of American hostages. But the 70s would see an increase in terrorism around the globe. The world watched in horror as Arab gunmen cut down 11 Israeli weightlifters in the 1972 Olympics at Munich. And the Irish Republican Army, the IRA, killed thousands of English and Irish citizens attempting to receive recognition for their cost, an independent homeland. And Americans began to see the world slipping into anarchy and felt powerless to fix the problem. But it would be in 1979 that the new Islamic fundamentalist government of Iran captured 52 Americans at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. They demanded the return of their former leader, the Shah, in exchange for the lives of the hostages. For 444 days, Americans watched helplessly as their fellow citizens were held in confinement. A rescue effort ordered by President Carter crashed in the desert in April of 1980. Malays, Malays, Malays. But there was one exception to these negative trends, and that was at Camp David, when the Camp David Agreement, brokered by Carter in 1978, seemed to be a success. These accords resulted in the mutual recognition of Israel and Egypt in a giant first step toward a lasting peace in the Middle East. But the U.S. USSR detente, arranged by Nixon and Kissinger, was crumbling by the end of the decade. And a second arms limitation treaty between the superpowers, known as SALT II, was delivered to the Senate only to be rejected. The 1970s ended up being coined the Me Decade. Across the land, Americans seemed determined to escape from the wars and social movements of the previous decade, and disillusionment with national and global action led many to look inward to find solace in discovering more about themselves. A magazine entitled Self sold thousands of copies. Women demanded respect as equal partners. Fashions veered towards the outrageous and ridiculous, 
reflecting the glorification of the rule-breaking and self-expression. And the sexual revolution took hold from the inner city to the small town. Therapy sessions mushroomed as Americans in all walks of life searched to find the real me. And every rule of fashion was shattered in the 1970s. Lapels, ties, and collars reached record widths. A polyester leisure suit available in a palette of citrus and pastel colors was extremely popular among young males. The jacket, pants, and vest were often worn with an open collar to display thick necklace chains nestled in exposed chest hair. Hair was long and long for both males and females. Afros were popular with African-Americans and sideburns for all races were long and bushy. But nowhere else was the self-indulgence of the 1970s more evident than in the nightclubs dotting the city landscape. Disco music and the disco scene capitalized on the widespread desire to forget daily troubles and just have fun. Temperature-sensitive mood rings were a bogus attempt to display inner feelings outwardly, and public streaking showed a desire to break society's norms and to show comfort with one's own body. The height of the ridiculous was reached in 1975 when an entrepreneur named Gary Dahl sold common rocks to thousands of Americans advertised as the pet rock. These pets were peddled with accessories and guidebooks, incurring the wrath of cultural critics across the nation who believed, well, a new low had been reached. And whether Americans were searching for meaning, escaping from the daily grind, or simply looking for a good laugh, the 1970s marked the height of self-expression mixed with a healthy dose of absurdity lots of polyester and poor taste. And that concludes our episode of Print the Legend, a podcast for U.S. history students where we take a look at the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. Coming up in the next episode, by 1980, Confidence in the American economy and government hit rock bottom. It's morning again in America, and looking for a change and a promise of a better future, voters turned to Ronald Reagan for the answers. And his message was clear, and it resonated well with America. Government has become too big, and it needs to be cut. Taxes are too high, and they too need to be cut. The birth of the yuppie, a strong economic future in America, and a changing course in the Cold War, the 1980s, coming up next time on Print the Legend. I'm your host, Mr. Nasosi, and I thank you for taking a little bit of time out of your schedule to join me for this learning, and I look forward to welcoming you back next time. <laughs>